And so, Hosea uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, It shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay. Grass withers and flowers fade away. And the Bible says that man is like grass. But the word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That you have revealed yourself to us by it. And that we have it here in front of us, and Lord, we confess that, uh, that this passage is in many ways very strange to us maybe, and so we pray that you would be with us tonight, that you would actually be in our midst to teach us, that by your Holy Spirit you would be present, and that you would unstop our ears, that you would open eyes that are blind, Lord, that you would soften hearts that are hard, and that you would reveal... Lord, that you would teach us something about ourselves, but in so doing, more importantly, you would show us yourself, your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. So we pray unto that end, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, as we start, let me give credit, sort of especially for some of this stuff tonight, to uh, men like Les Newsom and Tim Keller, uh, from whom I've borrowed and shamelessly stolen parts of this. Um, all right, so this semester, as, as most of you probably know, we're studying... Um, dating, sex, marriage, uh, relationships, sort of the whole, uh, the whole ball of wax. Um, and we're basically trying to see what the Bible has to say about these things, how the Bible informs them. Um, and so in regard to marriage especially, which is what we're going to in some ways focus in on tonight, I would be willing to guess that, that most everybody falls into one of two camps. Um, some of you might well think that... Uh, sort of, I guess, 
you know, if, if people want to get married, that's fine for them. Um, but you think it's sort of an antiquated idea. Um, it's kind of silly. Uh, you're, you're naive to think, you know, if you're really going to commit your whole life to just one person. Um, but if you want to do it, that's fine. Uh, you sort of look down on marriage. And probably the majority of you maybe think sort of exactly the opposite, which is that uh, might be looking to marriage to sort of make everything okay, right? That if you find that, if you find that one someone, right, if you find the exact right person for you, uh, that they'll sort of swoop into your life and, and really everything else will fall into place if you find that special someone. Um, that getting married will complete you and give your life wholeness that it's never had. Um, and hopefully what I want you to see tonight as we look at this for a few minutes is that actually both of those ideas are wrong. And that I think through this, through this text, we'll see that the Bible gives us sort of a third option, I guess you could say, um, a third option of understanding marriage that will help us put both our skepticism on the one hand and our uh, pinning all of our hopes on it on the other, be able to help put those down. Um, and so I want to see three things from, what, uh, from this passage and, and really the book of Hosea. Uh, and they're on your outline there. Number one, we're going to talk about Hosea's story. Number two, Hosea's message. And then thirdly, we'll, look at, we'll draw a, really just one lesson from Hosea. Okay, so first, Hosea's story. Like I said, we, can't, we obviously can't read the whole thing tonight. You know, uh, time would not allow. So what's going on here? Uh, you, you, know, you may not be familiar with Hosea. Uh, read it very often. But tucked away in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Um, and it's actually a, an amazing book. Uh, and it, I think it will teach us a lot about marriage. So what's Hosea's story? Hosea lived about 700 B.C. He was one of God's prophets, which meant uh, he was basically... Uh, God's mouthpiece, right? God would um, deliver messages to Hosea and to you know other prophets, and he would speak them to the people. Um, sometimes they, he would, God would even have them act out the prophecies, what he wanted to convey to his people. And uh, so, one day, evidently, we see in verse two, God says to Hosea, "Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom." For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay. That, at the very least, that's odd, right? God tells Hosea, his prophet, the, the man of God, it's time to get married. And what I want you to do is I want you to go and find a whore and marry her. And so Hosea goes out and he finds Gomer and takes her to be his wife. And Gomer is, in fact, a whore. Um, and from the... From the Hebrew word, it's, it's possible, people differ on this, it's possible that she is a prostitute, but not necessarily. Um, so it's possible she's a prostitute. It's also par- possible that she's just, um, she's just basically slept with everybody, right? Okay? Uh, and it's weird. I know this is kind of strange, but this is who God told Hosea to go marry. Um, one thing is clear, whatever the Hebrew word exactly means, this girl, Gomer, just to be quite frank, is a slut. She's a skank, skis, whatever word you want to put on it, right? They all start with S, evidently. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just clear in this, in this passage. And so, uh, as Hosea's wife, she bears him three children, only the first of which is actually Hosea's. 
and she runs around on him. She shacks up with other men, and eventually she leaves him for some amount of time uh, throughout the book, right? This is the part we didn't read. Leaves him for some amount of time, and then somehow ends up for sale at a slave auction. And so there she is. Uh, you know, if you could read further, you would see she's probably up in front of a crowd of people, um, probably stripped naked, and people are bidding on her to buy her. And so Hosea actually has to show up, and he actually buys his, his own wife. By, he buys her back. She goes for 15 shekels of silver and 9 bushels of barley, which by my calculations, and I don't really know if they're right, but the best I could, I think it's about 145 bucks in today's terms. So not only, this, I'm trying to make a point, not only is Gomer a whore, but she's a cheap whore. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, that's what, the, that's what this text is telling us. So there you have it. That, in sort of a nutshell, is the story of Hosea. Okay, so that begs a few questions to say the least, right? Um, so we need to take a look at Hosea's message. What is this trying to tell us? Um, so I think the obvious question here is, why in the world would God do this? What point does this serve? It's a very odd story. Why would you have your, your spokesman, right, the one that sort of represents you to the people, go and marry a woman like this? Well, the answer is because God is essentially telling Hosea, I want you, I want you, to, I want you to know what it feels like to be married to someone that constantly rejects you and runs around on you so that you'll know what it's like for me. He's basically telling Hosea that you'll never really understand my heart until you know what it's like to have your heart hurt for a wife that runs around on you. And so in in verse 2, when God is telling Hosea why he wants him to do this, God makes it clear that his people have whored around on him, right? And so all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God's relationship to his people, uh, how he relates to his people, all throughout the Bible is pictured, uh, is described as a marriage. As a marriage, but God says here that, that Israel, and so when you, in the Old Testament here, Israel, you know, uh, it's just a, sort of the Old Testament way of saying God's people, right? Um, us, if you're a Christian, says that his people have played the part of the whore or the harlot. Uh, and, and they do so by when they reject God and they run around with idols, right? When, basically, when they, when they give themselves over to anything else that's not God. And he says, my people are doing that. My people are playing the whore. And it's, it's a very vivid picture. And there's some, there are actually some passages we could turn up in the Old Testament that are even more vivid, where God describes what they're like in their whoredom. It gets it, stuff, you know, you don't, uh, you don't hear about a lot. And, uh, you know, you don't hear that Sunday school lesson a whole lot. Um, and so God is telling us that idolatry... That sin is not just, it's not just a mere breaking of the rules, right? I told you to do this and you did not do it. That, that really sin and idolatry, it's spiritual adultery, I guess we could say. And so one quick application is this, that you have to see that 
that what that means is that the sin that's in our lives, the, the way that we reject God in, in whatever form or fashion that looks like, it's not a tame thing. I think that we tend to think about it, you know, our sin is sort of this, this rough edge that we kind of need to polish up a little bit. You know, when we get some time, we're going to pay attention to that. And, you know, I do need to kind of quit doing some of these things and start doing some things. But, you know, it's not really that big a deal. Um, you know, the, the sin problem doesn't really go that deep. I think one of, the, one of the things that this passage is telling us is that it's saying that your sin goes way deeper than you know. That really what you do, and I do, when we sin against God, is that we, take, we take it in like our lover. That we, that we give ourselves over. Sin is not something that we do, it's sort of this external like, yeah, I did, it was wrong. It's actually me giving myself over to it. I mean, again, it's, it's paralleled with sexuality, with, with the sex act of giving yourself to something. I don't think we often think about our, our own sin like that. But yet God has bound himself to his people in marriage, right? And so he's taken vows, as it were, that he's committed to his people forever. And he will not break his vows no matter how much his wife or his people whore around on him, so to speak. And so Hosea's marriage to this faithless woman, Gomer, is a picture of God's marriage to his faithless people. All right, so... If you recall, as I was giving you the sort of the gist of Hosea's story, we sort of left him buying back his wife, right? And I think a big question that we need to answer is, why in the world would he go buy her back? Right? Why would you just not, why would he not say, you know what? Enough is enough. Um, I, <laughs> you know, you can imagine after the uh, second child that's not yours is born in your household, Right? And then she runs away, and then you hear she's at auction that you think, you know what, that's okay. I I think I'm done. And just wash your hands. But that's not what Hosea does. He goes and buys her back. And the question is why. Here's the answer. Just before he goes to buy her back, back, I want you to listen to the verses just before that. If you have a Bible, it's Hosea 2, 14 through 23. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses, though. Okay, so in chapter 2, God's been talking about how Israel, follow me here. God's talking about how Israel has done nothing but whore around on him. Okay, and then he says this. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, which is an idol. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And his very next words after that are to Hosea. And he says, and the, it says, and the Lord said to me, go. 
And he goes and he buys back his wife. I mean, you see, you can almost picture Hosea running you know, to this auction. He's just heard these words of how faithless Israel has whored around on God, you know, just played the part of the skank, you know, unimaginably. And yet God says, as bad as it is, I have committed myself to her and I love her and I will bring her back to me and I will treat her, I will treat her beautifully. And on, it's on the heels of that that he says, go. And so you can picture Hosea, I mean, we're sort of reading between lines, running to this auction, right? And pushing his way to the front of the crowd to get to the front. And, you know, the, the bidding is going, right? 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks. And he's, you know, however much it takes, however much it takes. And he's still in there. And then eventually, you know, whoever else is bidding against him thinks, well, that's fine, I mean, she, she ain't worth that. And Hosea thinks, no, she, she's worth everything to me. She, think about the, just try to picture that. She's the one that ran around on him. She's the one that left him. And now he's the one paying the price to get her back. He's the one that is going to take the indignity and the shame of, of having to buy his wife back. And why? Because Hosea has seen it. Right? He's had a taste, he's just had a taste of what real love is from what God just said. He knows what, what true love really looks like, how God loves his people even though, even though they're faithless and, and he'll stop at nothing to get them back. So Hosea, Hosea's seen it. He's gotten a little glimpse of true love and it has propelled him. It's inspired him to go and do the same thing. He's understood that God's telling him, I want you to go and marry a whore so that you'll know what it's like for me to love you. And I want you to see that I'm willing to pay to get back, pay whatever it takes to get you back because I love you. All right, so how does God buy us back? If that's the parallel we're making, how does God buy us back? What does it cost him? Well, interestingly enough, later in Hosea, it's, I'm telling you, it's a fascinating book. Go home and read it. Later in Hosea, uh, in chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, 11, 8 through 10, uh, God is talking about how his heart is broken over his people, how they've rejected him, how they've left him, and his heart's broken. And he says that, uh, he says that he's going to roar like a lion and that his people will come back to him. Okay? Now that's strange because... Other times in Hosea, in, in, in the Old Testament, where it talks about God roaring like a lion, they're all in the context of judgment. That when God roars like a lion, it means watch out. Because it's talking about God roaring as a lion, as sort of devouring his prey. Judgment and wrath, it's bad news. Always. And yet here in Hosea, later in Hosea, it says that God is going to roar like a lion and it's going to bring his people back to him. So how is that? Well, the answer is that he, he's still roaring in judgment. And, and he's still, it's still the picture of God devouring and executing his wrath, but it's not Israel 
that's devoured. All right, so follow me here. In Revelation 5, at the end of the Bible, right? Revelation 5, we get a picture of God's throne room. And, and standing before God is the Messiah, is Jesus, who has conquered, you know, conquered death and sin, conquered evil. And Jesus is described, where is it? Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Next verse. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. All right, so you see what that's saying? John, as he's describing, as he is describing the throne of God, the elders cry out that the elders describe Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when John looks and sees it, what he sees, what has been described as a lion, he sees a lamb that looks like it's been killed. And that lamb is Jesus. So do you see, do you see the point? The point is that when God roars in justice, when he, when he devours his prey, so to speak, and he executes his, his judgment and wrath as the lion, he does so on the lamb. And the lion is the lamb. You following me? So what that means is that not only has God made promises to his people and and married himself, taken vows to his people and said, I will be faithful to you always. No matter, even if when you break, when you break your vows, I will not break mine. Not only does he do that, but when we break our vows, when his wife, when we run around on him, He's the one that takes the punishment for it. And so when the, when the lion roars, when the lion devours its prey, it's the lamb that's devoured. So the one that's, the one that's roaring in judgment is the one being devoured. In other words, he stands in the place of his people. And takes the wrath that they deserve. Also he can. Well that's how he buys us back. He pays the price that needed to be paid. It cost him everything. And he did it because he loves his people. Because he loves us. You could, you could say that he would rather die. Than be without you. And that's the message that we need to hear tonight. It's. It's that marriage, a marriage that looks like that, a picture of true love that's going to help us to even begin to understand marriage uh, on, a, on an earthly scale, right? And one of the things that we have to see is that earthly marriage will never satisfy you completely because it, it wasn't designed to. It's designed, in a sense, to come up short because we're actually betrothed to another. 
And it's actually designed as a marriage, is actually our marriage, right? Earthly marriage is designed as a, as a living illustration of what's true about how God loves his people. So marriage will save you. And so it's, it's infinitely important and, and beautiful and necessary in, in some aspect. But it's only a marriage to him that will fulfill us completely like we want. Like we want. So thirdly and finally, Hosea's lesson. What do we, what do, we do with all that? Um, there are no doubt countless lessons that we can draw from this. But I just want to focus on one because uh, I feel like it's that important. And it's this. I think that we have to see that love, and this is how it applies, you know, okay, dating and marriage, you've talked about Hosea the whole time. Here's how it applies. That love has to fundamentally be, or in the Bible, I guess we say it this way, in the Bible we see that love truly, fundamentally is an action before it's a feeling. Okay? I'm going to say that again. Love is fundamentally in its design, an action before it's a feeling. And that distinction is enormous. What do I mean by that? All right, think about how we typically talk about love. We talk about falling in love, right? You fall in love like you fall in a ditch. You just can't help it. You were going to class. It was just Thursday, right? Just a normal old day. And... You just met this guy or this girl, and you know. Next thing you know, like whoop, ditch. You fell. You just fell in love, and it's beautiful. And we're so in love. Um, but what I want, what I want you to see is that really, if we describe love like that, that you know, oh, we're so in love, we fell in love like that. Then it's really nothing more than a description of your temporary feelings for that person. And I think I can back that up by saying that. We fall out of love just as quickly and just as easily, right? Um, you know, you say, I don't know, I guess it just sort of lost something. The spark wasn't there anymore. Uh, we're just not in love anymore. Um, he doesn't love me like he used to. And so what, I think that we need to start being honest that our definition of love, typically, is really... is really basically just an emotional feeling and not much more when we talk about it in, in, in that way, right? It, it's something that, it's in reference to us. We love somebody because it pleases us. You know, whether it's a certain body type or a certain personality or the way that you're treated, whatever it is, the way that we typically think about love is inherently selfish, it's the way I feel. It's inherently subjective, right? It's the way I feel, which changes. And it's inherently temporary, right? It's based on something that's impermanent. And so the second that we start feeling something different than those you know, warm fuzzies and the positive, positive emotions, then the love is gone and the relationship is over, right? And certainly you've had enough experience with just people, to know that your feelings are going to change, right? Um, you know, the roller coaster of your feelings is, well, it's going to be exactly that, right? A roller coaster. Um, and certainly in a marriage, it's, there are going to be days where that changes. Your feelings are going to, 
Your feelings are going to vary, just to be quite honest with you. Um, and so that's why I think it's so important to see that, that biblically, love is first and foremost an action or a commitment before it's a feeling. And look, feeling is still important. I'm not like, you know, advocating, don't worry about what you feel about somebody, just pick somebody and commit to them. But feelings should flow out of that action or that commitment. Um, and that's exactly what we see played out here in the story of Hosea, right? That he's, God's feelings, I guess you could say, sort of go up and down. They change throughout Hosea, right? And again, feelings is in quotes. Kind of careful how you talk about that. But, but God stays committed to his people no matter what, right? All right, so I mentioned... Uh, a couple of weeks ago that I might watch The Bachelor and Bachelorette sometimes. Okay, so Amy and I watch it every time it's on. Although Bachelor Pad was a little over the top, and we didn't watch much of that. Um, all right, so watching The Bachelorette last season, or you know the one that's just passed, uh, anybody else watch it? Okay, all right. Um, Allie, right? Allie's on a date with, uh, I don't remember his name, I kind of want to say it was Scott. Uh, one of the guys she's singing about Marion, and she says this, I'm just afraid this guy, you know, he seems like a great guy. Amy and I thought he was a great guy. Um, says, I'm just afraid that you're going to wake up one day and all of a sudden think that I'm just not good enough for you. All right, so that's a reasonable fear, right? I mean, that, I, I see where she's coming from. Um, so she sort of poses that to him as a question. Like, I'm just afraid that, you know, eventually we'll, you'll wake, we'll wake up one day and you'll think, yeah, I just don't think you're good enough for me. And so she basically says, like, what do you say to that? And his answer was something like, you know, no, 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 that would never happen because I know that, I know that true love is something that, that I deserve um, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he knows that... So whatever, whatever. And he says, I know that you'll always be the one for me. And of course, she says like, she's like, oh, that is so sweet. And she cuddles up with him. And, and Amy and I are sitting on the couch and are both, I'm a little more vocal. I'm like, that is not sweet. Like, that's, that's evil. Like, there, there's nothing sweet about that. Like, quit kissing him. Like, you need to kick him off. That's not the answer you want to that question, right? Of like, no, you're great. You're going to be the one for me forever, right? That's not sweet. Um, like I said, yeah, I think it's, it's evil. It might sound good, right? I mean, if you're confused by that, I, think, I mean, that sounds like a fine thing to say. But there's nothing behind it. It's not worth anything, right? Um, I guess, but think, think about the answer that says this. You know, supposing the guy said, you know, you know what, you don't need to wonder. Yeah, yeah, all right. Imagine Allie says, I'm afraid you're going to wake up one day and just think, I, just, I don't know what I've done. Imagine if the guy said this, you know. You don't need to worry if that's ever going to happen. And you know why? Because it will. I'm telling you right now. If you and I get married, there will be days where I wake up and I think, wow, I married a really selfish person. Wow, I don't know. Maybe I could have done better. I shouldn't say that. but um, 
wow, I'm not, I'm not so sure uh, this is a lot of fun right now. But I'm still going to be with you no matter what, forever. Okay, now that might not sound romantic at first. And by your laughter, I can tell that you think that it's not. But I want, what, I want to suggest to you that that's what true love looks like. I, I would put forward to you that you, in some sense, could not say anything more romantic than, look, that will be true. And, and the flip side is true, too, right? Allie, or whoever, is going to wake up and think the same thing about him. It's going to happen. You, you know, there are days that yeah, your feelings go up and down and they change. But to be able to look and say, you know what, it's not about my feelings. It's about this commitment that I'm making. That's what true love... I mean, look, don't lie. That's what you want somebody to say to you, right? Or that's at least how you want somebody to act towards you. And the only way that we can ever begin to think about love like that ourselves is to have experienced it. To actually be in a marriage where the other person is perfectly committed to you no matter how much you whore around on them. We have to experience ourselves. And that's what God, that, that's the gospel, right? That's the good news. That God has, has committed himself to you in a marriage that looks like that. No matter what you do, if you put your trust in him, no matter what you do, he's always going to be there. He's always committed to you. And so I would ask you this. Do, do you think of your relationship with God like that? Do you picture him as a loving husband to you? Even if you're a guy, it's strange, but... Do you picture God as, as a loving husband to you? Because I think sometimes if we, if we do draw that picture, we think about God as a groom, you know, uh, we sort of picture him standing at the end of the aisle with his arms crossed, you know, as, as the bride, the church, you know, you come down the aisle, and he's, just, he's sort of got his arms crossed, and he's just sort of tolerating this marriage. You know, like, okay, I said I would do it, and I will. I'm committed for sure, right? Let's go. And I want you to see that that's not the picture. The, the way the Bible pictures it is a God that not only is committed to you, but that loves you. Right? I was at a friend, I'm going to end with this illustration. I was at a friend's wedding several years ago. And the church did not have a center aisle. So the groom, my buddy's down there at the front. I'm actually in the very last seat in the church. What a big church. I'm in the very back row. Okay. Buddy's down there in the front, and when the doors open in the back, he's going to see his bride for the first time, right, that day. When the doors open, everybody stands up, that's the way, that's the way it works, and all of a sudden, sort of stadium seated a little bit, rises, he can't see her. There's no center aisle. Okay, I cry all the time, I'm going to cry telling you this. I'm on the very back row of the church, I hear him, I can now see him because he's standing on his tiptoes. And I can hear him say, I can't see her. I can't see her. Exactly. <laughs> every guy in here just went, dude, what? And every girl went, oh. All right, why is that a great... Like, you don't do that. If you're the groom, shut up, right? You don't talk until it's your turn. He doesn't care. He wants to see his bride because he loves her. He doesn't care what people think about him. He's on his tiptoe saying, I can't see her and I want to. And I want to suggest to you that that is a very good illustration of the way that God feels about you, feels about his people. That he loves you with, a, with passion, 
with honeymoon sort of passion. Do you know a God like that? He's offered to you. Let's pray.